This is John W. Henry. You might be wondering if I'm disappointed that the Red Sox are in last place again. Wondering if I'm going to make a change as Chief Baseball Officer. To answer that question, I'm going to point to what I told Jed McCaffrey in The Athletic this offseason. In this competitive American League East, if you're 500 and we're currently only one game under 500, you could be in last place. I told you people this was exactly what was going to happen. And if you thought we would be better than this, then you clearly were not paying attention. Right now, the Red Sox are currently 14th in Major League Baseball in payroll. So I think Haim is doing a remarkable job as the Chief Baseball Officer. And I look forward to him continuing to build, maybe, hopefully, maybe, a sustainable contender. And by sustainable, I mean cheap. Hello everyone, welcome to the long-awaited episode 20 of the Fenway on Fire podcast. Uh, so, some of the Illuminati out there, the haters. Got YouTube going on my fucking phone here. Stop! There we go, it's off. Uh, yeah, probably thought I was just lying in the weeds, waiting for this team to shit the bed, and then crawl out of the woodwork. Well, I'll admit the timing looks convenient, uh, but I assure you that was not the case. It was laziness, as much as anything. Well, I should say laziness. I'm a creature of habit that has trouble maintaining habits. Like, if I'm in the habit of something, I'll keep up with it. But just maintaining the habit for more than a few months or a couple years, not my strong suit. So, we're back today. Um, lots and lots to talk about this god-awful baseball team. Uh, beverage of the week. Let's get that out of the way before we begin in earnest. It's going to be undeclared major from Buttonwoods Brewery in Cranston, Rhode Island. I was down there last week, visited uh, my friend Morgan, who's uh, one of the owners or the owner. Uh, that's their fifth anniversary lager. Nice, light, easy drinking uh, lager, but it's got kind of like a modern uh, hop flavor. So thumbs up to the beverage of the week. So we suck again. So, you know, when I recorded last a month ago before going to uh, the Craft Brewers Conference, and I've just been Busy since going to Nashville, spending that week down there, uh, you know, following up with people from the show, trying to drum up business, make money, keep the lights on, etc. Um, you know, the team was flying. You know, they just finished or were in the middle or was right around the time of that eight game winning streak where this team was twenty one and fourteen. Uh, the I Bluminati were, you know, peacocking. You know, Tom Karen was scolding everyone on Twitter. See, maybe this team isn't as bad as you thought it was. Maybe they're good. And at the time, I think I even said it on the show. You know, maybe I could have gone back and re-listened to it, but who the fuck is time for that? That you know, the reaction for some of the toxic positivity people was really kind of dampering my joy of the Red Sox exceeding my rock bottom expectations, and so I couldn't enjoy that. But now the Red Sox are what I told you they were going to be from the beginning, and I'm not enjoying this either. I assure you. Uh, so last night, and I'm going to get into all the gritty details for last night's game. So we were recording on Friday, June 9th. So this would have been the Thursday night game, June 8th. We're not going to go over in 
minute detail last month of Red Sox games. I have watched most, if not all, of these games while I've been away from recording. But we're going to deep dive into last night because it signifies, it epitomizes where this team is, and it's nowhere fucking good at all. Um, Lost my train of thought. Um, Yeah, so last night's game, where the team is. Oh, so watching that game, like... Like, I wasn't mad at the time. Like, I was almost, like, bewildered. Um, actually, I called into the Off the Pike podcast, and uh, Brian Barrett uh, played my call. Um, like, watching it live, you know, it was kind of surreal. Um, and then, like, after the game, it just kind of marinated, and I just kind of thought about it more and more. And then I just got angrier and angrier. It's kind of like I went from acceptance to anger, kind of like I worked backwards on, like, the stages of grief. I don't even know what the, what exactly they are. I have a very basic understanding of what the stages of grief are. But I'm pretty sure I backtracked. So I couldn't sleep. I stayed up. I listened to uh, the ITM podcast, listened to Off the Pike, or at least a segment uh, on the Red Sox. And then I listened to um, uh, Name Redacted. So I was up probably till 5 in the morning consuming Red Sox content. Uh, and that's what you have to do it these days because, you know, neither EEI or the sports hub talk Red Sox at all. Like, you know, it's all, you know, Patriots, you know, voluntary off-season team activities. You know, if you care, great. I barely care. I care more about this baseball team. That's why we have this parallel ecosystem that, you know, I'm a very, very probably increasingly small part of due to my horrible job recording or keeping up with a consistent recording schedule. So... That's where my head is at. I slept a little last night, this morning. Not a lot. Um, just, it's just, I'm just disgusted where this team is. Just absolutely disgusted. So, let's just jump right in. So, last night was the rubber game of a three-game series in Cleveland against the Cleveland Guardians. So, as you may already know, because the Illuminati don't fucking shut up about it, Every team in the NL Central has a losing record. The Red Sox, if they were in the Central, would be in first place. Maybe the Red Sox aren't that bad. It's just dint of geography that this is a last place team. Haim really isn't that bad at his job. We're not that bad at all. We're going in the right direction. Shut the fuck up. Stop it. Stop it now. There's nothing I want in life more than for Cleveland, the White Sox, the Twins... I don't care. Someone in the AL Central go on a 25-game winning streak, so I never have to hear that fucking line again. Oh, if the Red Sox were in the AL Central, if they were in the NL Central, they're better than the Brewers. Stop it. Stop it right fucking now. For the love of God, it is awful. It is pathetic. Stop it. So let's put in perspective exactly where this fucking team is. So... Obviously, this era of Major League Baseball, they've watered down the playoffs with three wild cards. It's its almost like a church picnic, you know, wiffle ball game at this point. But for 150 years, the success of a ball club was measured whether are they in first place or if they're not in first place, how far are they out of first place? Well, at time of recording, your Boston Red Sox are 14 games out of first place. 14 the Kansas City Royals are closer to first place than the Boston Red Sox. The Washington Nationals are closer to first place than the Red Sox. So, the Washington Nationals are closer to the Atlanta Braves 
than the Boston Red Sox are to the Tampa Bay Rays. Tell me if that's acceptable at all. Even in a down year for the Boston Red Sox. Absolutely fucking not. The Colorado Rockies, the most morbid, myopic, just listless, directionless, head-up-their-ass organization in Major League Baseball, they're only 12 games out of first place. The Red Sox are further out of first than the fucking Rockies with their weirdo, cheap-ass Christian owner and the front office where nobody ever gets fired, everybody gets promoted from within, and nothing ever changes. And when we should sell, we keep all our players and lose them for nothing, or we pay $25 million to get rid of our best player, Nolan Arenado. That's the organization that is closer to first place than the Boston Red Sox. Now let's look at the wild card standings. So the third wild card bait, essentially... You know, obviously we've gone over how shit the Central Division is, but for all intents and purposes, the third wild card is the sixth best team in the American League. Six out of 14. Being in range, in contention, because I said this from day one, I don't expect this team to win the division, win the World Series every year. I do expect them to be in the race every year. Be in the mix for sixth. That is an embarrassingly low bar for the Boston Red Sox. So... Your division leaders, Tampa Bay, Texas, and Minnesota. First wild card, the Baltimore Orioles. They're two and a half games ahead of Houston, who's the third wild card. The Yankees are the second wild card, a half game ahead of Houston. Right nipping on the heels of the Houston Astros are Toronto. Toronto's on a run. They At one point, they were behind the Red Sox and in last place. They're 8-2 and two in their last 10, um, so they are only a half game behind Houston. Then the Los Angeles Angels. The meme organization, the organization that inspired the, the Tungsten RM O'Doyle tweet, you know, that famously has not won a playoff game since 2009. They're two and a half back. And then the th- third behind, I guess you call them third place for the third wild card, five games out, your Boston Red Sox at 31 and 32. So we'll talk more about the outlook, maybe. We'll see how long I go. Um, for the rest of the season. But let me ask you this. Last year, this team was around 500. They were a game out of the third wild card. And we had that half-assed trade deadline where we trade our starting catcher for a couple of prospects. You know, one and Manuel Valdez, who looked like Jeff Kent for a week, has the worst hands of any infielder I have ever seen. The, the only guy I can think of in my entire time watching the Red Sox is Scott Cooper. Just, just you know, frying pans for hands. He's horrible, and he stopped hitting. So you got him and William Abreu, who's you know putting up numbers in Worcester. We'll see what he does if and when he ever gets up here. So you trade your starting catcher for that. Uh, you know you get uh, Reese McGuire, Mister Babip, uh, the king of the cheap hits uh, for Jake Diekman. You got Fam and Hosmer, who were blah. Hosmer gave you nothing. Fam was at least a competent major leaguer, which is more than you got out of Jackie Bradley. So we had that half-assed deadline last year when they were one game out at the deadline. Now you're five out. You know, granted, there's you know, seven weeks to go. You know, they, they could go on a run, theoretically. Anything's possible. If anything, my money is in this team being further away. So they're going to blow this fucking thing up. So emotionally prepare yourself for that. So we go into this game, rubber match of the three-game set against a below 500 Cleveland Guardians team. 
starting for the Red Sox, because, you know, we'll talk about Sale later on. You know, Chris Sale, you know, on the IL, right when he was back. I even pronounced him back earlier this season. I said I would not declare Chris Sale back until he had three good starts for every two good starts. So his 10th start was his sixth good start of the season to go to his four bad ones. He hit my made-up statistical threshold. So I declared Chris Sale back after his 10th start. And then start 11, which I was actually at the game. And I'll talk about my experience going to the game later on, too. He walks off the mound holding his shoulder and he's on the IL and. You know, I'll, I wouldn't put money on seeing him again at all this season or even next season at this point. So, but the rest of your rotation guys or guys in the mix for the rotation are healthy. Corey Kluber was healthy. Nick Pavetta was healthy. Garrett Whitlock was healthy. Actually, last night was Garrett Whitlock's term in the rotation, but they decided to push him back. So you have all these guys that are healthy. So who, who do the Red Sox decide to have start the game? But this guy... Dermody, I already forgot his first name. Doesn't fucking matter. He's already off the team. You probably already know about, you know, the tweets he tweeted and the tweets he liked, you know, the bigoted shit, whatever. So for some reason, they embarrassed the organization to bring up this kid to start one game and then get rid of him. Why? What is the fucking point? So... This kid starts, I shouldn't call him a kid, he's 32. He's a 32-year-old journeyman fucking nobody. So he gives them, gives up three runs over four innings, which for a journeyman, 32-year-old, making his first major league starts after 30 major league appearances all out of the bullpen, most of them in 2017, that's all you can expect from a guy like that. It's 3-2 to two in the fifth. Then they put in Corey Kluber. Kluber, you know, Pitches a you know doesn't give up any runs in the fifth, but then in the sixth inning, they left him out there to fucking die. Eight hits in a row. Eight. How does that happen? So this is a three to two game, a game that's still imminently winnable, and you let Corey Kluber just get his fucking dick kicked in eight fucking times in a row. By the time Corey Kluber left the game, he had given up seven runs on eleven hits, two homers. That 3-2 game was a 10-2 game. The Red Sox, on June 8th, waved the white flag and punted the fucking game. Why? Why? They have 13 pitchers on the active roster. You know, the pitching staff, for the most part, is healthy. Yes, there's been some bullpen guys who are hurt. You know, Jolie Rodriguez, Richard Blyer hurt, but those guys have been fucking useless anyway. Great pickups there. Hi, him. Um... You know, you had Kluber, you had Pavetta, you had Whitlock, you know, you know, Schreiber, sir, okay, you know, he's your sixth, seventh inning guy. Uh, Winkowski, he's still out there healthy. You know, they've had to use him, but still, this it's not like this is some injury-depleted staff. This is the staff that High and Bloom built, for the most part. There are plenty of teams that have been, had worse injury luck than the Red Sox. But this pitching staff was still so deficient they had to punt a game. It wasn't like on the 7th that they played some one of those old-fashioned, you know, 19-inning games that nukes the bullpen, you know, back before they had the stupid runner extra inning rule. It wasn't like they had a doubleheader. They had a doubleheader, okay, it was on Saturday. That was five days ago. The bullpen has had ample time to rest and recover since then. The fact that they had to punt a game like that in June, in June, June 8th, when the staff for the most part has been healthy, is just absolutely embarrassing. It's pathetic. It's unacceptable. It is 
it's just beyond. Like when I called off the pike, I I think the exact words I goes was, was what the fuck are we watching? What the fuck was that? This just goes to show just how listless, directionless, and inept this organization is. For the Boston Red Sox, a team that used to be that no longer is, an iconic brand, a first-rate organization, the organization that other poverty, shitbag, inept, incompetent franchises look to as an example, no more. Absolutely outrageous, pathetic, unacceptable, and... Uh, I'm just going to stop because I I could just go and, and scream obscenities for another 15 minutes, but I'm going to take a deep breath, take a break, and you know we'll, we'll pick this up. The biggest reason why this team is where it is, and the reason why I told anyone who would listen, this is where this team would be, is high in blooms, multi-year, basically 10-year-long failure to adequately build a major league pitching staff four years in a row he's 0 for 4 you could maybe maybe give him a check mark for 2021 he still gave Garrett Richards eight million dollars and his big trade deadline acquisitions to help the bullpen were big fudge and Hansel Robles so that one you can maybe give him thumbs in the middle but still no thumbs up Thumbs down this year for sure. So they needed this offseason to get a premium front of the rotation guy, ideally a guy who could give them innings. And their solution was Corey Kluber. Now, Corey Kluber did take the ball last year. I didn't expect Corey Kluber to be great, but if we're being fair, I didn't expect him to be just completely washed up, just unpitchable like he is. I mean, he's a DFA waiting for happen waiting to happen, I should say. You know, when, when when they left him out there to die last night, I was I wouldn't have been shocked if they just, you know, you know, pulled the plug after the game. That would have been a mercy killing. I mean Carabas said this and I agree that I've gone from being angry watching Corey Kluber pitch to just, you know, feeling bad for him. I mean, it, it's like if you've ever seen like a fight, especially like a boxing match, like a TV fight, like, you know, when uh, like not one of the pay per views, but like an HBO fight where you got like a a champ or a high contender facing some schlub and the schlub, you know, either can't land any punches or he does connect, you know, doesn't have enough power. Uh, the better fighter just walks through his punches and beats the shit out of him. That's what it's like watching, you know, Corey Kluber pitch. I mean, he wasn't lighting up the radar gun last year uh, with Tampa Bay when he was their number five starter, uh, the last guy on their postseason rotation, and the last guy out of their bullpen in a 15-inning extra-inning game. Um, but he, at least he had good control. Um, now he's just, you know, walking guys, leaving balls in the middle of the plate. It's just been absolutely horrible. I mean, if you had asked me the likelihood of this happening, I mean, when you're throwing 88, your margin for error is so small. Like, when you're a soft tosser, especially in the modern game where the average fastball is, what, 93, 94 miles an hour, especially a righty throwing 88 miles an hour, when the end comes, it can come quick. Um, and it is for Corey Kluber. So that was their one external signing of significance. They gave him $10 bucks, and that's been $10 million completely down the fucking drain. Meanwhile, Nate Evaldi, American League Pitcher of the Month, 
I ranted and raved on the show that I wanted Nate Evaldi back. Maybe he'd be healthy and the velocity is, would come back. It has. Um, even last year, at the end of the year, when he was throwing you know, 94, I told you, Nate Evaldi has good control. Nate Evaldi has a wide array of pitches, changes arm angles, actually knows how to pitch. The lost art of pitching, Nate Evaldi does that. He's not a guy who just blows people away with his stuff. His stuff is above average, but it's not elite. But you combine the above average stuff across the board with the, the elite control, the command, and the pitch ability. That's how this guy has been the best pitcher in the American League so far this year. And this is a guy, too, who has guts and balls. I mean, this is a guy who started opening day three years in a row for the Red Sox, started the wild card game, started game one of postseason series. I don't have to remind anyone what he did in 2018. So if you're not going to spend for a Verlander or a DeGrom, which I would never have advised them to sign DeGrom. He's you know going down with Tommy John. But if you're not going to go for a Verlander or a Rodon, um, Avaldi was probably the best they were going to do within the their self-imposed financial constraints. And I say self-imposed because they could clearly spend more money on elite talent, but they're choosing not to. Um, and so reportedly they offered him a three-year deal. He shopped it. They went out, they signed Jansen and Martin. They decided to stay under the luxury tax instead of going over the luxury tax. So when Avaldi came back, they told him to pound sand. And of course, the eye bloom nodded. Oh, Avaldi walked away. No, he was trying to negotiate. The Red Sox made him an offer. He tried to see what else is out there. You know, if you think that the Red Sox don't have the resources to sign Chris Martin, Kenley Jansen, and Nathan Avaldi, if you think that's an unreasonable ask, they don't have the money, the wherewithal to do that. You're a fucking clown. Also, if they had gotten under the luxury tax last year like they should have, then maybe they could have gone over this year. But instead, they went under this year because they're punting the season, like Steve Phillips told you on the MLB Network in the offseason. You know, the, the illusion of contention, as Dan Shaughnessy said. Um, you know, let's just slap together a bunch of veterans, a bunch of 30-something-year-old guys. Maybe we'll get lucky with some of the young guys, catch lightning in a bottle, and we'll be on the fringe of relevancy. They're not. So, Corey Kluber blew up in their face. Chris Sale, I mean, the fact they got as much out of Chris Sale as they did is probably more than they had a right to ask. And he was the only guy consistently going six, seven innings. Nobody else in the staff was. I mean... Even Corey Kluber's good games, he was barely going five. Uh, Bayo, he's a young guy. His control comes and goes. He's had a couple of games he's gone six or seven, but a lot of these games with Bayo, he's running up that high pitch count. Uh, Whitlock's been off and on the IL. Tanner Houck, he's has struggles going through the lineup a second or third time. The numbers are, are horrible the second and the third time through the lineup for Tanner Houck. So... Nobody else was giving this team length in the starting rotation other than Chris Sale. And then now that Chris Sale is gone, they're absolutely screwed. I know in the modern game, guys don't go nine anymore. The 250-inning starting pitcher is extinct. The 200-inning starting pitcher is an endangered species. I think like 10 guys threw 200 innings last year. But still, even in the modern game, you can't have an entire rotation of five guys giving you five innings at the most every time through the lineup because that's going to nuke your fucking bullpen. Let's look at the doubleheader the Red Sox had uh, this past Saturday. Um, 
They had uh, Garrett Whitlock start game one. Thanks to uh, Panhands, Ed Manuel Valdez, and the shitty defense behind him, Garrett Whitlock can only go four and two-thirds innings in one of those games, so they had to use the bullpen to get through game one. And then by the time game two rolls around, they used Kenley Jansen to close out game one. When game two rolls around, tie game, they had to bring Kenley Jansen back out there. And people are screaming at Cora, why are you doing that? Kenley Jansen's old. He has injury history, blah, blah, blah. Well, who the fuck else does Alex Cora have out there? They used an opener for the second game of that doubleheader. I think it was Cutter Crawford. He gave him like three innings. You know, because Cutter Crawford, they're trying to, I guess, stretch him out to be in the rotation again. They don't have enough arms, or the arms they have aren't giving them enough. And that is the failure of High and Bloom. Anyone with a functioning brain could have seen that they did not have the horses on the pitching staff. You know, instead of, you know, bargain hunting for Corey Kluber, they need to go at the top of the market. I mean, Andrew Heaney and Zach Eflin, you Eflin took chose to go to Tampa Bay for the same contract as the Red Sox offered. Andrew Heaney took less to pitch in Texas instead of coming here. Either one of those guys would have given you at least some innings, some bulk. This team has no bulk. So this pitching staff is just entirely deficient. I mean, they're trying to bridge it with Josh Winkowski or at times Cutter Crawford or I guess now Corey Kluber having multiple guys in the pen who can go multiple innings to kind of piggyback some of these starters that are incapable of going deep into games. But the problem is, let's take Josh Winkowski, for example. Winkowski's been pretty good. So Cora, to protect leads, will put Winkowski in the seventh inning of a game, then go to Martin, then go to Jansen. All right, so Winkowski gave you one inning instead of like two or three, and then you can't use him the next game when you need him. You know, you need starting pitching still. Even in 2023, the Red Sox don't have enough. High and Bloom has not done enough again. Um, and even at times when the starting pitching has done well, you know, Paxton, they've gotten more out of Paxton than they had a right to ask. So Paxton, his stuff has looked great. You know, his last start, he even went seven before that it had been like five, five and five. If I remember correctly, in terms of, uh, innings pitched, there's a guy you got more from him than you had any right to ask, considering the guy gave you nothing last year and had barely pitched since 2019. You know, like, believe it or not, he was a less durable Chris Sale over the past five years. So those two guys who any functional baseball organization would go into your thinking, okay, we can't count on these guys for anything. They've given you something and you're still short on the pitching staff because you failed to do your fucking job. Let's take a look at the position players now. I could go on and on about how this is a bad defensive team. Again, I told you before the season this was going to be a bad defensive team. Um, but, you know, there's been, you know, bad range. You know, that Little League home run debacle over the weekend. You know, they can't even defend a fucking hit and run. But we're just going to focus on the bats because I'm already running out of steam here, running out of rage. Um you know, last year you had a team that didn't hit a lot of home runs and they acquired the only home run hitter they acquired was Adam Duvall, who, you know, in a good year will get maybe 30 home runs, but hit 240 and strike out a ton. Now, Duvall was great for, you know, a week and a half. Then he had an unfortunate wrist injury and he's actually going to come back tonight. So anyone who thought this was going to be, you know, an above average power hitting team, delusional. Now, some people thought, you know, well, we have guys that work counts, you know, 
We'll walk. We'll we'll keep the we'll keep the line moving. We'll score runs that way. Even with the new rules, the shift bands and everything else, it is very very hard in the modern game to score runs or to be an above average offense without hitting home runs. Um, now, for a month in April, when this team was playing well, this was a very very productive offense. Um, so the the hot this model, you know, it's kind of like. Like a like a knockoff of the O three O four offense, you know, where they had you know eight nine guys who were all gave you good at bat and got on base, and I say a knockoff because those teams still had you know David Ortiz, Manny Ramirez, even Nomar in two thousand three. You know they had real thump in the middle where this team just has Rafael Devers. So even kind of like that knockoff O three O four, kind of like the old school money ball approach, like you know the O two A's where. You know, they bring in the washed-up David Justice, like, you know, we bring in the 38-year-old Justin Turner. You know, maybe we could score runs, you know, that way. But even that team had, you know, Miguel Tejada. Um, so it looked like it was working. So we're going to start on the positive. Masataka Yoshida, thumbs up. Excellent, excellent signing by Hyam Bloom. Those scouts that told Keith Law and Kylie McDaniel, those executives, that this guy was a slap hitter, a singles hitter, those guys, if they if they filed a report to their team actually saying that, like if you're, you know, a Kansas City Royal scout in Japan and you filed a report saying Masataka Yoshida, weak slap hitter, won't translate to Major League Baseball, you should be fired from scouting. And you shouldn't be hired by another club. You should have to take the insurance exam. You know, I saw it. You know, I'm not, this is going to sound, that, that sound trunks, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I saw from the first spring training game on my couch that this guy would be good. But if you remember that first spring training game, he took that fastball in off the hands, got his hands inside the baseball, and hit it off that right field wall at Chet Blue Park. You know, it was the same right field wall at Fenway, where it's 380 feet away, and it would be a home run a lot of other parks. So there were at least indications right away that this guy could hit the major league level. You know, he had that little stretch where he kept hitting ground balls and it was starting to look maybe, you know, not so great. But, you know, he gets his one or two hits all it feels like every game, gives you a good at bat. He gets the, the fat part of the bat on the ball. He hits the ball hard. Um, so zero complaints about Masataka Yoshida. Devers has been killing them. You know, the only guy this organization has paid in the last five, six, ten, whatever years you can't have Devers hitting 240 with a 295 on base percentage. It's just not good enough. In terms of why it's happening, um, you know, Red Sox stats keeps you know pointing out that you know the batted ball data you know looks the same as it was last year in terms of him hitting the ball hard. That the results should be better. That he's going to snap out of this any day. Um, you know, Red Sox has even tweeted out like a video montage of all the line drives Rafi has hit in the last couple of weeks that were right at uh, outfielders or balls that outfielders made like nice running catches against. So maybe Rafi's going to turn it around. But to this point, the results haven't been there. And when you're the only guy in the lineup, the only elite hitter in the lineup, the only guy who strikes fear. And the, and the opposing pitchers, you need more out of Rafael Devers. Um, in the month of May, he went from like May 9th to May 30th without taking a walk. Now, he did miss a couple games. He was nicked up a little bit. But 
Still, the guy went almost three weeks without taking a walk. Now, Devers is a very, very aggressive hitter, doesn't walk a lot normally. But you can't go three weeks without taking a walk. The quality of the at-bats has not been good enough. They're starting to get better now. Uh, the adjustment Devers has to make is, you know, protection in the lineup. It's kind of a debated thing. You know, the stat heads will tell you it's overrated, doesn't exist. But if t- if opposing pitchers are pitching him more carefully for whatever reason, he needs to take more pitches. Just because he can get his bat on a pitch outside of the zone, it's not surely going to be good contact. So he has to make that adjustment, be a little bit more selective, get into a little bit better counts. Uh, he's starting to do that a little bit. Um, you know, there's been times where it looks like he's been in between, late on the fastball, out in front of the breaking pitches. Um, I think what a lot of it is too is, you know, just feeling the pressure a of the contract. You know, you know, you're getting paid thirty five million a year, and b not having Xander, not having JD around, and looking around thinking, okay, I have to be the guy. I have to be David Ortiz, and you know, maybe you know he's struggled with that a little bit to a degree. I'm hoping Devers will turn it around, but you know we've seen across baseball. I mean, guys like you know Trey Turner, Real Muto, um, Carlos Correa. You know, a lot of guys with long track records of being impactful hitters. You know, Juan Soto had an awful April. Now he's turned it on. Machado is having a bad year. Bogarts had a good April, but then he tanked a little bit in May. Now he's on the IL. So there are guys all over the sport who are all-star players that, for whatever reason, it's been a, kind of a weird year that way where just a lot of guys just out of nowhere really, really struggling. So, But Devers has killed him. They need more out of him. Uh, but the rest of the lineup, I told you, Cassis would struggle. He's actually struggled in April probably a little bit more than I thought. Uh, he's slowly starting to come on in May. I mean, the average is still under 200. Uh, he's starting to drive the ball a little bit more, use the opposite field a little bit more. Um, you know, he was clearly overhyped coming up through the system. Um, I think he's closer to a, like a Matt Olson type where he'll hit – 240, 250, but he'll walk a lot and he'll hit some home runs. He's closer to that than he's like a Freddie Freeman, a guy who's going to hit 300, use the whole field, be more of a threat, um, or like a Goldschmidt. I don't think he's in that class, but if he's a, a Matt Olson type, you know, it's a useful piece. Um, you know, maybe we'll see more out of him in the second half. They're going to need it. Uh, second base has been a black hole. Christian Arroyo didn't hit till he inevitably got hurt. Who could have seen that coming? It's not like we needed to actually sign more, you know, middle infield help. Uh, and Manuel Valdez, you know, he came up, he was hot. Um, you know, I, I think I joked in the last podcast that, you know, he's the next Jeff Kent. Uh, I think Jeff Kent's probably a much better fielder than Manuel Valdez. I mean, supposedly the kid tries out there. He just, he just, he just doesn't have the hands to be a major league infielder and he doesn't have the speed to be a major league outfielder so I don't think this guy is much of has much of a future in the major leagues he could be a 4a guy goes up and down but you know after a hot couple few weeks he's tailed off big time he's hitting in the 240s now it wouldn't I wouldn't be shocked if he's the guy who's sent down when uh, Duvall is activated tonight so he has turned into a pumpkin uh Enrique Hernandez so his struggles at shortstop well documented they clearly needed to sign a shortstop when Trevor Story was hurt, and High and Bloom's solution was to trade for Aldeberto Mondesi. We haven't even gotten an update on Aldeberto Mondesi in a month. 
Who knows if and when this guy's going to play this year? We have no idea. Now, remember, this guy's coming off ACL surgery. Before Mondesi blew out the ACL, he was injury-plagued his entire career. And this was the guy Hyam Bloom targeted for middle infield depth. And at the time, well, he might miss some time. Well, we're two months into the season, and he hasn't sniffed a rehab game yet. So, horrible move by Hyam. Unacceptable. Um, Enrique Hernandez, I didn't think he'd be this bad at shortstop. I mean, the time he's played second base, he's looked fine at second base. Uh, second base is what he played the most of when he was with the Dodgers. Um, I'm shocked he's had leads Major League Baseball in errors. I'm not shocked he hasn't because he, has, he didn't really hit last year. The only year that um, Enrique Hernandez was an everyday player and an above-average hitter was 2011, so that's kind of the outlier. So the fact that you gave him $10 million and expected him to be an above-average bat, that was a failed evaluation, and then... I'll, I'm going to give them a little bit of a break on the shortstop defense because, you know, I expect him to at least, quote-unquote, make the routine plays. And make the routine plays is one of those cliches you hear in baseball. It basically means the guy has below average or shitty range. You know, like when I say about Yoshida, Yoshida in the outfield catches what he gets to. I expected um, Kike Hernandez to at least make the plays to the with the balls he could get to. He's failed miserably at that, especially throwing. It's almost a mental thing, so... Massive fail. I'm going to give the Red Sox a little bit of a break on that. I'm not giving the Red Sox a break on Kike Hernandez's offense, expecting him to be an above-average hitter. Um, Verdugo, he was suspended last night for the lack of hustle. You know, in the modern game, it seems like whenever a guy gets publicly benched, we saw it with Tyler O'Neill in in, um, St. Louis, it just creates such a shitstorm. It's like, is it even worth it? But then again, I mean, this team is playing with his head up his ass and you know, they've had meetings, they've tried doing extra work. Cora, I think is just running out of ideas at this point to get through to this team. So he made an example out of Verdugo who by war has been the best position player on the team. He's played a great right field. So when they first got Verdugo in 2020, I liked his defense in right field. Then if you remember 2021, uh, Verdugo is actually the opening day center fielder. Um, but then they ended up moving uh, Enrique uh, Hernandez to center field, and they put Verdugo in left. And Cora made a point of saying, we like Verdugo in left. You know, they, they liked hiding him in front of the wall. And he basically played left most of 2021 and all of last year. And now they're moving him back to right, and they challenged him to get in better shape. And he's played a good right field. You know, he was hitting you know 330 for most of April. He's tailed off from that, but he's been pretty good this year. You know, he's kind of the least of their problems. Um, what they're going to have to make a decision on is, is Verdugo a part of the core going forward? Because he is a free agent after next year. Or, if you're going to sell at the deadline, is he a guy you look to move? Especially if the manager is kind of done with him. I think the manager might be fed up with him too. If Core doesn't want him and, you, and Core is going to be the manager going forward that could play into what they decided to do with Alex Verdugo. Because, I mean, if, let's say you give Alex Verdugo, you know, the Benintendi contract. Let's say you give him $75 million. Is that work ethic going to be there? Is he mature enough to handle that kind of long-term commitment? You know, money changes people. So that's something else they have to put into that evaluation. And uh, based on this, the way this organization evaluates talent, fully expect them to fuck it up. Uh, center field. Um, Jaron Duran looked awesome for three weeks. Then he looked horrible for two weeks. You know, just basically, he was hitting 400, then he started striking out every at-bat, 
and now he's starting to hit a little bit. So at this point, just throw him out there, see what you have. That way at the end of the season, you know, okay, do we need to get a center fielder or not? Is this guy part of the future or not? You're going nowhere. Just throw him out there. I really don't care anymore. Um, you know, with Duvall, you can, you know, let Duvall play center against, you know, the tough, you know, lefties if you want. Do whatever. I, I, you know, I just, I just want to see a full sample of Jared Duran playing pretty regularly. And then at the end of the season, we can make a call. Because when he does hit, I mean, just when he puts the ball in play, like anything to the gap, even if it doesn't get by the outfielder, if it's in the gap, a double is in play. If it's in the gap and actually gets by the outfielders, a triple is in play. And the center field defense, it's been pretty good for the most part. You know, him and Verdugo are both out to lunch on that Little League home run. But by and large, you know, the defense has been okay. He's He'll never be the most instinctive center fielder out there like a Kike or a Jackie Bradley. Um, but he's fast enough. Uh, he can outrun any most of his mistakes out there. And we just need to see about the bat if he can make enough contact to uh, be a viable everyday uh, major leaguer. Uh, Duvall, we'll see what he does. I mean, he's on a one-year deal, so if this team sells, what they need to do is they need to play him enough to showcase him and then trade him. I think you're going to see a lot of guys traded off this roster. Uh, the catchers, Reese McGuire, he's still hitting 290, and it's the cheapest 290 you've ever seen in your life. I've started calling him Mr. Babbitt. Babbitt as in batting average on balls in play. Generally, if a player has an you know, unusually high Babbitt, that means they, they're having some good luck. And that good luck probably is not going to continue. So since the day Reese McGuire showed up, he's had this ridiculous BABIP, and he's putting up you know respectable batting averages. He's still hitting for really no power. Even his doubles are like little bloops down the line. Um, you know, the, the, controlling the running game, he's useless. You know, he's a backup catcher. Fine, whatever. Uh, Connor Wong, you know, He's hitting 240, a little bit of pop. You know, every time I want to crap on Connor Wong, you see, you know, he, he, his OPS plus is over 100. Like, it's like, I think last I checked was like 102, 103. So you're getting above average offense from the catching position. So, I, you know, I don't love the player necessarily. I still think he, long term, he is a backup catcher. But in 2023, he's been at least an adequate starting catcher, you know, He's a lot better controlling the running game than McGuire is. Um, the framing is not very good. Uh, Connor Wong should be uh, lobbying Major League Baseball to adopt uh, the robot umpires. Um, but, you know, the catching, I still don't think it's great. It's been better than I thought it'd be. On the list of problems the Red Sox have, it's, it's, it hasn't been horrible. Um, Rob Refsnyder has been a nice platoon. Batty continues to hit lefties. It was weird they had a press conference to announce his extension. One question I didn't see answered is, why are they extending Rob Ref Snyder now um, as opposed to literally anybody else? I mean, he was under team control, so you weren't going to lose Rob Ref Snyder. You're just getting a little bit of cost certainty for next year, and the player gets a little bit of security. Because this is a guy, Rob Ref Snyder, I think the Red Sox are his fourth or fifth organization. You know, he's been up and down between AAA and the majors, been DFA'd a bunch of times. This is the first guaranteed contract the guy's ever had in his life. So from that point of view, you know, just getting any type of guaranteed money, especially, you know, $1.85 million for a guy like Rob Refsnyder, that's a hell of an accomplishment. It's a big day for him. 
So that's why I kind of feel bad crapping on the fact that we had a Rob Ref Snyder press conference, but why the fuck are we having a Rob Ref Snyder press conference? Like, I don't remember Gabe Kapler having a press conference when the Red Sox signed him back in the day. And that's basically who Rob Ref Snyder is. The righty platoon outfielder. So I don't know what we're doing there. Um, maybe the Red Sox are just that desperate for good publicity. But I, I do like the player. You know, he hits lefties, plays good outfield, runs the base as well, gives you a good at bat. Not the greatest hitter in the world, but as, you know, fourth outfielder platoon guys go, uh, not too bad. Uh, Rymel Tappy, I thought, was a decent bench guy, pinch runner. They DFA'd him, uh, probably because of the upcoming 40-man roster crunch. Um, anybody else worth talking about? Uh, Pablo Reyes, I think the kid's name is the kid they bought from AAA in Oakland. So that's another kind of move that worked out. So they needed a middle, middle infielder. They buy this kid from Oakland, and he's actually hit a little bit. So, you know, decent move, I guess. He's probably not long for this team, um, especially, you know, if and when Trevor Story comes back. Um, but just kind of looking at the big picture, though, this is a lineup. Oh, and Justin Turner. So he's been okay. You know, 260, decent walk rate, a little bit of power, sub 800 OPS. You know, ideally, you want more thump from the DH. Like, I don't know, J.D. Martinez, who's leading the National League in slugging percentage. I don't know if J.D. Martinez would have done that here. Uh, you know, his personal hitting guru um, is the Dodgers hitting coach, so that probably has helped. Um, but at the time, like, I wasn't stomping my feet about losing J.D. like I was for Nate Evaldi, uh, or Nathan Evaldi. He doesn't like being called Nathan Evaldi. Um but it should have raised more eyebrows that the Dodgers identified J.D. Martinez and signed him. So think of it this way. The Dodgers and the Red Sox essentially swapped G DHs. All right, so Turner has a little bit more defensive versatility. He can play first. He can play third. Where J.D. played zero outfield last year, has played zero outfield this year. And at this point of his career, strictly DH. So there's a couple little mitigating things. But essentially, the two teams swapped DHs. What organization do you think is better at evaluating talent? The Dodgers or the Red Sox? Do I even have to ask? So the fact that the Dodgers identify J.D. Martinez probably should have raised more eyebrows here in Boston. What do they see in this guy? Do they think he, he can be fixed? And if they can fix him, why couldn't the Red Sox fix him last year when he only gave you 13 home runs? So, uh, you know, Turner's been meh fine, I guess. I mean, he's giving you what I expected him to give you, but the fact that they couldn't get a legitimate middle-of-the-order bat to be the DH, okay, yes, Jose Abreu was their main target, and he went to Houston. He's been horrible. So, if you're an iBluminati, see, yo, you wanted Jose Abreu. Look at him now. Well, High and Bloom wanted Jose Abreu, so don't get it twisted. All right, do you want? if you want to give High credit for not extending for Jose Abreu, okay, fine, I guess, but you know, when you lose someone like J.D., who, all right, he didn't have the best year last year, but the way the team was constructed last year, why they struggled a little bit last year, but when they were good in 21, or even you go all the way back to 2018, the way that team was constructed, they needed a power bat at the D.H. spot. Even going back to Ortiz, they needed that kind of, they needed that D.H. to really get, to be that extra power bat. Um, so when the Red Sox have been good, they've always had that at least going back 20 years. And Justin Turner's not that. He, he never should have been expected to do that. 
you know, I don't know who else the Red Sox could have gotten, but that's Ian Bloom's job is to, when guys leave, find a way to adequately replace them. And they have not adequately uh, replaced the power bats that were lost. Um, and that's why this offense, you know, even if the overall numbers look good, it's trending down, and I fully expect it to get worse, just like I fully expect this team to get worse. Last Thursday, I went to uh, my first game at Fenway Park this year. I know I said I was not going to go in any games. I didn't pay for the ticket. I did give John Henry too much of my money on overpriced uh, Sam Summers, but I was there with my cousins. I was having fun, so whatever. It was the game that uh, Chris Sale got hurt. Maybe the last game we see Chris Sale this season. So just a few takeaways from the Fenway experience. Um, first thing that really caught my attention was the jerseys. Like, you know, you still see a lot of Sox jerseys at a Sox game, so you'd expect that. But the players on the jerseys, you still see a ton of Mookie Betts jerseys, lots of Xander Bogarts jerseys, Andrew Benintendi jerseys, especially from the female fans. You know, Andrew Benintendi, you know, when he came up, the hair, elite 80s hair on a 20 to 80 scouting scale. Um, Pedroia jerseys, still see plenty of those. Ortiz jerseys, some Devers. But other than Devers, you don't have, you, I, I, you could barely see any jerseys of guys who are actually on the team now. And, you know, Felger and Maz have been hammering just how anonymous this team is, how kind of transient it is, just how bereft of core guys it is. And that kind of really illustrated that point where, you know, like even back in the day, like I remember when they traded for Josh Beckett going out and buying a Josh Beckett jersey and wearing it to the game. Like, I didn't see any Yoshida jerseys. I mean, in terms of, like, their other additions, you know, is, some, is anyone rushing to buy um, a Justin Turner or a Chris Martin or, you know, Kenley Jansen jersey? <laughs> of course they're not. So it was kind of startling. So I, it's like the Red Sox at this point, like, like I even see a lot, saw like young kids. Like I remember, I saw this girl. Maybe this is just me being old, but I, I'd swear that she was couldn't have been older than fifteen, sixteen years old wearing a Dustin Pedroia jersey. So keep in mind that we're in the year twenty twenty three. Dustin Pedroia's last healthy, productive season was seven years ago, twenty sixteen. So that means that this girl was probably eight or nine years old the last time Dustin Pedroia was, you know, was Dustin Pedroia and. You know, supposedly on TikTok, the Gen Z, they listen to 90s music and it's more popular than ever. And you you still see, you know, teenagers wearing Nirvana shirts 30 years after Kurt Cobain died. And and it it, it struck me. That's what the Red Sox are. They're they're a nostalgia act. Um, You know, especially seeing that. Um, And it it just kind of shows, you know, where the Sox are in this market and uh you know they still draw well you know the crowd was into the game um you know my cousin uh who I went to my cousin Adam so at some point I want to have Adam on the podcast I've been we've been talking about it for months and months we'll do it if you think I'm angry wait till Adam is on the show um but at one point the crowd really got excited when uh, somebody hit like a sacrifice fly and he was just like offended like really we're 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 getting that up in arms we're celebrating a sack fly you know I the point is taken at the same time, you know, do I want to crap? At least they're into the game. At least they're, you know, not like they, you know, sometimes you people go to a game, they're not even paying attention to what's going on in the field. So at least they're engaged, I guess, if you want to, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, 
you know, the park was probably two thirds full at most. You know, our row, we were, so we were in the last row of the right field grandstand. Our row was 80% empty, you know, plenty of room to move around. You know, I guess from one point of view, we went to a ton of games, our family, you know, kind of that, you know, sweet spot, you know, the heyday of the Red Sox when they're at their peak of popularity from 03 to like 2010, 2011. I think 07 was the peak in terms of TV ratings where every game was sold out and you'd be jammed into those seats. And if you leaned back, the people on either side of you were leaning forward, then you kind of take turns. So it was nice being at the game, not having, not having to do that thing anymore. It was certainly a more comfortable experience having more breathing room, um, you know, at the game. But just, you know, the crowd did screw, skew a little bit younger, which, you know, is good for the long-term viability of the sport because, you know, the people who, you know, want to kill the sport and say it's dead and irrelevant and don't want to talk about it, you know, you know, like to mock baseball as like an old man game. Uh, but, you know, there were younger people there. They were into the game, so that's a positive. There are people there who still care. They are. You know, just the local media isn't connecting with them. They're engaging with the sport in different ways, whether that's podcasts or YouTube or social media or Reddit or whatever. You know, the Red Sox still matter to the city as much as the Patriots or the Celtics or the Bruins. And no matter how derelict the front office is, how absentee the ownership is, this team still matters. This team is still worth fighting for. That's why I do this show. If we're not happy as fans, that's why we have a right to demand better. That's why when we berated John Henry at the Winter Classic a week later, he opened up the vault and they signed Raphael Devers. Stop the hemorrhaging of talent, at least a little bit of talent leaving this organization. Now, the next step for this organization is to actually replenish and replace the talent that's been lost. So I did call into uh, the baseball hour earlier this week. Um, I'll I'll link to it uh, in the show notes. Uh, Carabas was there with uh, Tony Maz. And, you know, they're talking about when the Red Sox will be good again. And I said, well, when they start spending money on elite talent, and I pointed out the Texas Rangers. You know, they signed Corey Seager, Marcus Simeon, who's... You know, probably going to be top five in the MVP again this year. You know, Avaldi, who's the front runner for Cy Young. They're surprising everybody. They're running away with the uh, AL West. And then, you know, Maz and, and Crab has kind of crapped all over it. Crab has pointed out, well, the Padres are in the Phillies are spending money. They're losing. Okay, well, those teams were both in the NLCS last year, and the Red Sox were in last last year, like they're in last now. Now, I know spending money is not a cure-all. It's not a guarantee. I get it. But what they're doing now isn't working. Like if they'd, let's say they gave Trey Turner $330 million and Trey Turner was sucking here like he was sucking there. I wouldn't blame Haim. I'd blame the player. He has a track record that he's not performing up to. If that happens, it's not the front office fault. The front office did its job by assembling the best team it could. Then it's up on the players to perform. What is happening now is the front office is getting players that just aren't good enough. And they're not performing because they're not good enough because they were never good enough. So at least if they try, like if I get a chance that a sense that they're trying and they care, then it'll be easier for me and other fans to get emotionally invested. Now, obviously, I'm emotionally invested, but based on the attendance and the TV ratings, there aren't as many people invested as they used to be. People aren't as excited as they used to be. So that's that. That's where this team is. Um 
the rest of the season's going to be interesting. I'm going to try to record more regularly. Um, I don't know if I'm going to commit to a schedule like, you know, every week like a, like was my initial goal. I'm going to record when there's stuff worth talking about or when I have the time, I guess. You know, if I can do once a week, great. I'm going to it's going to be more frequent than once a month. So this past month, bad job by me. I did as bad a job as Bloom did assembling the Red Sox pitching staff. So feel free to um, voice your displeasure because there's a voice line. So this is episode 20 of the Fenway on Fire podcast. Please like, rate, and share on the podcast application of your choice. Uh, there is a voice message link in the show description. So all you need to do to leave a message is click that link. Send your voice message. I will play it on the show. It can be anything you want. You can ask me a question. You can share your take, your rant. You can tell me I'm an idiot. I will play it. As long as it's not something Matt Dermondi would post on social media, I will play it on the show. Thank you very much for listening. Oh, Let's just talk briefly about this Yankee series coming up. If this team is going to show any signs of life, they need to sweep the Yankees. They are lucky that Aaron Judge is hurt. Um, they do, unfortunately, face Garrett Cole tonight. They have to beat Garrett Cole, then they have to find a way to win the next two games. It's baseball. Anything can happen. Weird shit happens all the time. I don't want to talk too much about this upcoming series, because recording this on a Friday afternoon, most people probably aren't going to listen until next week anyway. But if you're listening next week and they did not sweep the Yankees this weekend, just one more nail in the Red Sox coffin. Thank you for listening. Bye.